From MIT Technology Review, I'm Laurel Ruma, and this is Business Lab, the show that helps business leaders make sense of new technologies coming out of the lab and into the marketplace. Our topic today is artificial intelligence and how it helps companies build products with highly focused simulations that can be run in countless ways. An enormous amount of data can be collected, analyzed, and then used to make business decisions that help humans build better products. And that will be the difference in a highly competitive market. Two words for you. Trust statistics. My guest is Dr. Stefan Jokush, who is Vice President of Strategy for Siemens Digital Industry Software. He is responsible for strategic business planning and market intelligence. And Stefan also coordinates projects across business segments and within Siemens Digital Leadership. This episode of Business Lab is produced in association with Siemens Digital Industries. Stefan, welcome to Business Lab. Thanks for having me. So could you give us a sketch of your background at Siemens Digital and what you're working on now? Absolutely. Yeah. So our business is the technical software business in Siemens. And uh, we, with the software we make supports uh, the whole process of the initial idea of a product to all the way through the manufacturing of that product. Uh, and uh, then including the mechanical part, uh, the semiconductor, the uh, the software running on the device, the sensors, and then also the operation of the product. So one of our pieces of the portfolio is an IoT platform where the product then uh, basically feeds back information about its behavior. So all of this. And uh, what we tried like to think of is our software really builds a, a very complete digital twin of what we use every day in the digital twin, as I said, includes everything from the idea to the design to the manufacturing process to the operation. So your days are very busy. How do you fit into this entire operation? Yeah, my own job is, as you said, uh, for strategy. So in strategy, we, of course, look at uh, the overall uh, business plan for the business. We look at our competitors. We like to understand what they do. We look at the market around us, which is a very big and complex and very dynamic market. Uh, we run a, uh, also, we, of course, we have some initiatives at all times. We look at some aspect of our business, how it will evolve, how we might have to change our business model, how we have to transform our go-to-market model, how we interact with customers. As you know, in the software space, there's a lot going on these days where uh, we move away from having software that you install with a CD-ROM or a flash memory and, and you more and more expect now to find your software in the cloud. So all these kind of things are uh, aspects of, of uh, our environment that keep us busy. So in a discussion about AI, it inevitably comes up that um, people are kind of fearful about it, um, whether they'll lose their jobs, whether it's here to actually help humans or some kind of Terminator situation. Um, but, you know, we like to take an optimistic and uh, forward-thinking look at how artificial intelligence works. So when we, we, when we do discuss it, I like to always, you know, really um, set it in a, in a scene with thinking about humans and human keeping humans in the loop. So as a AI learns and processes data, how do you then frame human centric AI versus kind of a more nefarious machine centric AI? I personally have a huge privilege in that discussion, which is 
that uh, I did my PhD work about AI and machine learning. And that is a long, long time ago uh, in the mid 90s. So in the mid 90s, it was a big topic, all this whole thing of intelligence uh, that's encoded in these algorithms. And, um, and there was probably the same discussion back then. Is this going to take over? Um, are we going to be so perfect in automation that we don't need any humans whatsoever? And aren't, aren't uh, machines becoming not only more intelligent, but only even more creative than humans ever can be? So that discussion is at least 25 years old, probably much longer. And uh, nothing of that sort has happened. I would even say after I was done with my thesis, uh, the interest in all this machine learning stuff probably flattened out. And it just, I would say in the last five to 10 years, it kind of reemerged. Uh, and basically that is because the compute power that we have today to do even simple things, very simple things like recognizing uh, language or uh, or, or uh, recognizing a face on a, on a on a camera picture, that this is very doable now. But in terms of computers becoming really uh, more human-like or or dangerous to humans in terms of being able uh, to be creative, I don't think we have seen any of that. And this is now going on 25 years. So I personally believe we should be safe for another 25 years at least. <laughs> People will be very heartened to hear that. Um, but it does bring up a good topic, which is uh, trust. And where are we kind of with AI and trust and what AI can even do today? There's very different opinions. Uh, I would say and one of the reasons why the opinions are so different is that most AI algorithms uh, kind of don't show you exactly how they reason. They, they basically, you present AI with tons and tons of data, with so much data that you cover every possibility of what you're looking at. And if it works right, and if you have enough compute power, then uh, the AI application will give you the right answer in an overwhelming a percentage of cases. So if you look at stuff like face recognition that's now being used to to even unlock your phone or stuff like that. So we just get to a huge uh, reliability. And the as I mentioned this example, it it's becoming so, uh, we start trust the technology so much that uh, we give it jobs like recognizing identity, recognizing identity, which is a very critical application. So there is a a trust that's really justified by uh, by statistics, if you want. So we uh, probably whatever company was, I think it was Apple who came first came with that uh, face recognition to unlock your phone. Uh, they start trusting the technology after they really have been able to test it millions and millions of times and haven't gotten more than a few uh, misreads. So that's that's where the trust comes from. Uh, many people are still a little bit uh, worried about it because you never can tell how exactly AI works because you can say, well, it's it's the information encoded in about 5 million parameters. This is how it works, but you, you can't exactly tell. And uh, I know a few experts who who believe more in in other learning paradigms that that give you a more deterministic way, and are a little bit uh, uh, skeptical about uh, the the classic machine learning algorithms that others use. But I frankly, my answer is, uh, as long as you know your data set and you can test it and you get statistically a hit rate of ninety nine point eighteen nines after the decimal point percentage. 
then you can trust the algorithm. Excellent. So when we're we're thinking about a company like Apple, which is probably the best example um, when thinking about human-centered products, uh, how does AI fit into a product lifecycle uh, now in 2020 compared to five or 10 years ago? Compared to five to 10 years ago, I try to think back myself on what all we had and what we didn't have. Because I would say, in a certain modest extent, we probably had AI embedded in a lot of everyday products, again, without knowing that we have them. And But of course, it has increased dramatically. And we just briefly talked about this example of face recognition. You can say that all these smart assistants that we use today, whether they're called Siri or Alexa or Google or whatever their name is, but of course, that's a massive application of AI technology that is we, we are actually getting used to. So um, yeah, and, and it's really becoming more and more uh, what identifies a product. I think that's probably the big shift in the last uh, years um, where it, uh, it we really go after uh, what is that experience as a user? How, how does our product behave in, an, in a really smart and helpful and intelligent way? And that's what ultimately, I think, uh, creates a lot of our desire to have it and our loyalty to the brand. Hmm. So if you are one of these engineers who are trying to build this smart and unique product, where do you see AI um, being integrated to help those engineers and product designers make the best product they possibly can? Yeah, that's getting big, actually. So um, so AI is already uh, AI is basically very good when it comes to take over uh, heavy lifting type of work and to allow the engineer to focus on real creative work. And you wouldn't imagine how much heavy lifting work an engineer has to to do every day. One one thing that uh, actually we put in our software, which is a, a feature that watches a, a user and starts predicting what that user might do next, and basically make a recommendation, to kind of saying, "Isn't isn't that what you had in mind of doing next?" And that, of course, makes it much faster for the user to go through a certain work process, and maybe. Uh, that's for an experienced user, it's just faster. And for an inexperienced user, it may save a lot of time where that user isn't really sure what the next uh, step should be and starts digging through help menus and the and the menus on, this, on the screen and so on. So doing all this unproductive stuff. So I think in short, uh, the, there's a lot of heavy lifting work that AI is taking over. Another example uh, is what we use in our semiconductor uh, design side is uh, the semiconductor designers have to do a, have, a, have a lot of uh, boundary conditions and variation of their designs. They have to kind of keep it in mind that when they make a change. So AI is already helping them manage variations and just supporting the engineer here. Uh, or another example is uh, when you when you develop software, you get these bug reports and you get hundreds of them. And you have to read them all and manually figure out which component of your software is responsible for that bug. So that's another function that is now being automated by AI because it's another piece of work that's really a lot of uh, of, of tedious, detailed work. So I think AI is be playing a bigger, bigger role to uh, allow engineers to focus more on the real creative part of their job and uh, less on detail work. Yeah, and that's a bonus and a benefit for everyone, right? More creativity and less tedious um, work. So we bring this up up a level and we think about sharing data and connecting systems in within a modern organization. 
how does this like idea of sharing data and um, sharing scenarios and simulations and experiences help the organization actually start that evolution? Yeah, I think the simple answer is as, as everything is becoming digital, so uh, every organization is more dependent uh, on data than it probably was 20 years ago. So we live off data. And and uh, as we just started talking about, if, if you want to take any use out of AI, you need lots of data. You need so much data that ultimately your AI can extract something meaningful out of it. So, um, and, and the problem is, of course, that historically, uh, as as every business has become more digital, we have created these islands of data, basically because we we solved one problem first. So we created product lifecycle management, which is the the place where you hold the data for design. Uh, but then we have also the the ERP system, enterprise resource uh, uh, management. Uh, which is uh, uh, like SAP, which holds all the business data. That's a different data repository. And if you really look closely into complex uh, manufacturing companies, they have dozens and dozens of data repositories and they're all disconnected. And that's uh, a challenge. It's kind of the next level of uh, what what has to happen is that we start bringing together these very uh, disparate, these islands of information and uh, we start connecting them because ultimately when you hold a product in your hand, uh, the, all of these data from different sources are in there. So it's it's probably the, uh, after we have figured out to put anything we can into an electronic database, the next step is going to be to bring those, those data sources together. So, you know, in your experience, why is this valuable? What, what have you seen anything particularly exciting come out of disparate databases brought together for business um, decisions or, or some, just something surprising that helped a, a client or a customer do something interesting? Yeah, I think I'm not, you put it very positively. I think I have, have a lot of negative examples where a seemingly small change in one one of the islands of information has a huge impact, but there's no chance to see it without knowing the other data. But in in the automotive industry, uh, like the mechanical design and the electrical design, it basically was born independently. And, and uh, it's only right now automakers are figuring out better and better how to bring these worlds together because they have to. Uh, like uh, just as an example, if you develop the electrical system of a vehicle, uh, you might think that uh, at some point I need an extra wire here. Just I can't solve it differently, so I add an, a wire to my my wire harness and just make it a little thicker. So it may may look like a fairly modest change where you are sitting. You're just saying we're we're, we're changing from a diameter of uh, uh, 0.8 inches to 0.82 inches. That can't be so dramatic, but your mechanical colleague has probably figured out where to put this wire harness in the vehicle, and he might have already ordered the tooling to be to do uh, metal bending and, and and really to build a cable channel that will exactly fit 0.8 inches, but not 0.82. This kind of problem still occurs in that industry, and the background is really a lot of the products that we use today, automobiles, but also electronics, cell phones, and so on, they are very highly optimized. If you if you open the hood of a 20-year-old car, you see a lot of space in there where you could put stuff. If you, if you open the hood of a modern car, there's almost no space. There's no wiggle room. 
And uh, because of that lack of wiggle room, it's really more critical today than ever to understand what happens if I change a little thing in my world, what happens to somebody else's world. And, and I think this is where you see, uh, I have lots of examples of what can go wrong if you don't take this into account. Uh, but th there's, of course, certainly a, a big potential also of, of avoiding these mistakes. Hmm. Yeah, lots of opportunities there eventually. But that challenge is bringing all that data together. So when we think about this, obviously, new but necessary attention to data, machine learning, and AI, how will it help spur on competition and accelerate a company's product offerings? Yeah, as I said, I think uh, as as consumers, as most of us who would like uh, buy technical products, we more and more, uh, I think, get excited by these very smart types of functionality. But, and and you probably agree. I mean, the, the day that a really reliable <laughs> and affordable mm -hmm. self-driving car hits the market, we will be very interested. And I think we are already interested if somebody tells us, okay, this car can actually parallel park without you touching anything. That is super exciting. So I think in general, AI-driven functionality will probably have a big part in differentiating what it, what a business can offer. Probably be a little even as exciting or more exciting than like the looks of a product or the aesthetics or other parameters like this. I think also uh, AI and electronics in general is coming into more and more uh, types of products that haven't been so heavy in electronics before. Like, look, uh, imagine running shoes or or sports equipment is, is getting smarter year by year and more and more things have chips in them. So I think overall it's, it's becoming more and more of a differentiator and a way to uh, attract uh, uh, people and also build these uh, ecosystems of intelligent applications that get people hooked. Yeah, that's, it's, Excellent for the consumer. You can see that um, for the person who builds it and the engineer and the production of it. How will AI help keep that human in the loop? How will, how will AI help a person's job? We talked a little bit about improving creativity. What else helps? Yeah, as I, as I said, my, my skepticism of humans really being replaced is is not so high than, than it might be for some other people. Um, but um, uh, and I think as we started talking about the, the most uh, AI applications that are now basically going into supporting the workplace actively, uh, again, they're mostly focused on uh, making the human more productive uh, and uh, being an assistant and take care of, of detail work of heavy lifting that uh, uh, humans aren't as good at and uh, they're also not, not as interested in. And of course, you can always make the argument, uh, yeah, if I make humans 10 times more productive, doesn't that mean I can let go nine of 10 workers if I, if I achieve this? So theoretically, that's true. Uh, I would frankly say that's really not what we have been seeing in the past. For, for some miraculous reason, um, before COVID-19 started, uh, unemployment in the U.S. was continuously going down for, I would say, ever since 2008. So whatever productivity was achieved in that time did not really lead to job losses. And, and if you look at uh, technical professions, uh, I think there's still a shortage of, of engineers, uh, which you would think, okay, we'll make engineers more productive. Shouldn't I lose a lot of engineering jobs? That's really not what we have been seeing. And I think one of the explanations is 
number one, the more productive we get, uh, the more um, the, the more sophisticated products become, and the more there's there's at some point consumption growth. And secondly, you always need experts to deal with the latest technology you come up with. I mean, before we had cars, we didn't need uh, car repair shops. Now we do. So it creates a new profession. And I think with AI, you will probably create uh, professions that will be about uh, really making it work, making the application stable. And um, so uh, to me, it's very hard to predict if it's really going to hurt uh, uh, things like job markets. I would say that's really not what we have been seeing. Right. So when we think about AI, benefits of it, how, how can AI be an invisible aid to these people building, designing, producing? I would say for the most part, it probably already is because you, again, as a, I think we had a few examples, you, you, many times you don't really see where it is in action or not. Of course, if you're, if your computer makes a recommendation, what you might do less, you, you will think, okay, some, some intelligent, uh, instance is they're helping me um, but in many other areas you might not even realize it there's, there's of course some some very exciting spaces where where we make it very visible or we, we, we get to see it very visible because we're actually getting better and better at completely automating the creative work and uh, for example of creating uh, structures that are uh, biologically inspired. So as you know, today there's a technology in manufacturing called 3D printing that is very flexible in what you, what the shape looks like that you build. And uh, there's technologies who can really take the uh, boundary conditions of a design and then let the computer figure out what the right geometry is and what comes out of that usually looks like a, like a vegetable or a plant. So the, the very funny structures get out of this. So in that case, I have... I have made this intelligence, of course, very visible and I've really taken the whole job of designing out of the hands of the human being. And uh, then the machine comes back with something that uh, you almost think it could grow into your in your garden. <laughs> um, so those are the very visible things that I think are extremely exciting. Uh, because again, if a machine can't do it, why should a human, and it can do it even in a more elegant way, why should the human uh, then then be bothered by it and not think about the more creative aspects? Uh, but on the other hand, I think um, there's a lot of functionality already that we really don't get to, to realize that AI is supporting it. And I think over time, um, I almost think 10 years from now, we might even not have so much discussion about the value or the future of AI or how it will evolve because we will be so used to it. I mean, how many discussions do you have nowadays about the value of Excel, of, of cellular calculation, although we use it every day, everybody uses it every day in something, and it's so universal that we hardly ever think about it. So that to me, that there's two, two possibilities 10 years from now. Either uh, we either it's we are so used to it that we barely ever talk about it, or we hit another wall like like there was hit in the late '90s where you figured out there's so much it can do, but we don't have strong enough computers to have it do more. So it we we forget a little bit about it, and then 20 years later we have yet faster computers, and we again get all excited. That's amazing. I love the idea of of somehow equating AI to being as commonplace as a spreadsheet. Like, You'll just use it and you won't even know it, but your life will be better because you have it. Stefan, thank you so much for joining us today and what has been an intriguing conversation on the Business Lab. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. 
That was Stefan Jokush, a vice president of strategy for Siemens Digital Industry Software, who I spoke with from Cambridge, Massachusetts, the home of MIT and MIT Technology Review, overlooking the Charles River. That's it for this episode of Business Lab. I'm your host, Laurel Ruma. I'm the director of Insights, the custom publishing division of MIT Technology Review. We were founded in 1899 at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and you can find us in print, on the web, and at dozens of events each year around the world and online. For more information about us and the show, please check out our website at technologyreview.com. The show is available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to rate and review us. Business Lab is a production of MIT Technology Review. This episode was produced by Collective Next. Thanks for listening.